You're listening to Minding the Brain with Dr. Kim Hellemans and Dr. Jim Davies. Episode 50, Happiness. Today we have a guest interviewer. I am proud to introduce the great Darren McKee. (laughs) Darren is a seasoned podcaster, the host of the award-winning The Reality Check, a great weekly podcast about science and skeptical approaches to current topics podcast that has been going on for 13 years. Darren is also my co-author. That's right. Hi, everyone. Uh, Jim and I co-wrote a chapter on free will in the Westworld psychology book together. Welcome, Darren. Thanks, Jim. I'm happy to be on the show. But are you, though? What is happiness? (laughs) Indeed. Today's topic on minding the brain is happiness. Mine, yours, everybody's. Right. Let's first talk a bit about what happiness is, and then we can get into what science says about how people can be happier. Happiness is a word in English, but does it correspond to something real, psychologically? It's a good question. Uh, Probably not, I would say. I I mean, I think it's best to think of happiness as a kind of umbrella term for all the different ways you can have good feelings. Mm, So when psychologists talk about emotions, they often view them as an axis of valence, with positive on one end and negative on the other. Right. So jealousy, for example, is generally an unpleasant emotion, and excitement's more positive, uh, and so is contentment, enthusiasm, and others. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, Happiness seems to be linked to one of those basic emotions, like joy. That's true. Uh, It's considered basic because all humans and all cultures seem to have it, and they use the same facial expressions to express it. (laughs) Like smiling? Yes, smiling. But if we go one level deeper, though, we feel like there are several positive emotions that produce smiles. But when you're talking about being happy or increasing happiness, uh, it doesn't matter so much whether it's one emotion or many, except maybe to researchers and people like us who are obsessed with what words mean, <laughs> concepts. <laughs> but for, in, indi- for individuals who just want to have more positive feelings, it, it probably doesn't matter much how many things exactly are involved. They just want all the good feelings. And those people who search those self-help aisles, too. Uh, So it may seem straightforward, uh, but lots of people think that happiness isn't measurable. Yeah, they do. Uh, I even have a psychologist friend who thinks so. But um, I think you can measure it, although, you know, psychological measurements of all kinds are not perfect. That makes sense. It seems that if you ask somebody if they're happy, it's kind of ambiguous what you mean or Mm. even what they might think you mean. For example, it could mean that you're asking about how they feel right now, or it could mean that you're asking about their life in general. Also, it seems that you can't just say, if you're happy and you know it, clap your hands, and then find out (laughs) if they're happy that way. True. You know, you might be really happy in general, but annoyed in the moment, maybe because you stubbed your toe or something. And the two major ways we measure happiness correspond to these these concepts. The first is a moment-to-moment happiness, which is a measure of your level of positive emotion right now. And this is typically measured with a technique that's called experience sampling. Uh, Is that when participants are given an app that randomly pings them during the day and asks, how are you feeling and what are you doing? Yeah, and they used to use pagers for that a long time ago. So you can get with that a general idea of how happy someone is by asking them over and over how they're feeling and the average you could interpret as how happy they are as a person. I guess one of the complications with that approach is that people often do difficult, unpleasant things, uh, but there's a big payoff at the end. So they're working towards that. Yes, and that's where the other kind of measure comes in. So you ask people not about how they're feeling right now, but how satisfied they are with their life in general. So I could say, 
well, I'm feeling bad right now because I didn't get my grant I applied for, but in general, I'm a happy person who's satisfied with my life. Do you know what the relationship is between these two measures? Uh, I guess if one predicts the other is really well, do we really need both constructs? Yeah, yeah, it's a good point. So they don't always correlate, um, but they both speak to something important to us about the concept of happiness. So somebody might have a lower moment-to-moment -moment happiness, but have a high life satisfaction, for example. Maybe like someone who has worked really hard to start their own business? Yeah, that's a good example. It's hard, sometimes unpleasant work, but you're proud of it, and that makes you happy with your life. On the other hand, you can just seek pleasure all the time, maybe smoking pot and playing Nintendo, but then not feel so great when you reflect on your life as a whole. Mm. Well, given the complexities of different experiences and their impact, asking someone how satisfied with their life seems an important aspect of studying this domain. Does life satisfaction correlate with these other things we think it would? Yes. So people who measure high on life satisfaction also mm -hmm. tend to measure high on other things like um, their health and their frequency of sex and exercise, the strong social ties, and lots of other things. Those lucky devils that like exercise, eh? <laughs> uh, also, it's important to note that there are cultural differences too. For example, when you ask about life satisfaction, Americans are measured as happier than Chinese people. But when you use experience sampling, it's no different. Yeah, they're the same when you... When they seem to be equally happy moment to moment. It's like the... Uh, Culture of America is focused on being happy. It makes you wonder about these surveys that find happiness differences between countries. Some of those mm -hmm. measures aren't measuring happiness directly, but rather things that we think will cause happiness. Life, life expectancy, freedom, and lack of corruption. But others use life satisfaction and find differences. And so you're, are you saying that when they look at a country and how happy it is, they're not even looking directly at happiness? Well, right, they may be looking at related constructs, but not necessarily the same thing. So one must be cautious of comparisons. Yeah, well, I guess it makes sense. I mean, experience sampling is, uh, those studies are really expensive and they're really hard, really pain in the ass. Now, before you said the culture of America is focused on being happy, and that makes sense to me because the pursuit of happiness is baked into your Declaration of Independence. The American life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness is a bit of an amusing contrast to Canada's peace, order, and good government. Of course, in that declaration, it says pursuit, not achievement, which is an important nuance many fail to realize, in my opinion. It's often the reward that comes from pursuit of a goal and progress towards it that brings satisfaction to people, not necessarily achieving it. Uh, doesn't Pinker talk about meaningfulness as a third factor of happiness in his book Enlightenment Now? Yeah, some psychologists talk about meaningfulness and purpose as being another way to look at happiness, a third way. Uh, and having a child is an example that people often bring up, so it can lower your moment-to-moment -moment happiness as well as your life satisfaction, but it provides meaning in your life. And they want to be able to capture that somehow. But this third factor is very controversial and most stick to the other two conceptions of happiness. That's probably because they're much easier to measure. That said, most don't want a meaningless life, uh, at least to their own conception of meaning. Uh, but anyway, focusing on the recent research, there's been a real surge in happiness studies in recent decades. It seems like everybody, well, in the Western world anyway, is obsessed with happiness. Yeah, there's, there's like endless articles, both in academic journals and the popular press, on how people, how happy they are and how they can get happier. I guess a bit of supply and demand, because many people don't always know what makes them happy and are looking for some guidance. That's right. It's interesting. On the one hand, people have strong opinions on what is going to make them happy. But on the other hand, they also can see how their decisions don't work out the way they'd hoped all the time. So, you know, like many things, we need science to help us figure out 
uh, what to do. Science. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> taking a personal example, I've learned that eating gummy worms makes me happy in the moment. Mm. Nom, nom, nom. But if I eat too much or too many, I'll feel worse later. I don't need science to tell me that, but I do want science to make a cheap, tasty, sugar-free gummy. Come on, science, what are you doing? <laughs> Trying to cure cancer? Uh, right. For me, it's it's cereal. Um, I can just, like, eat it mindlessly until I'm sick. But <laughs> with happiness, there's often a short and long-term aspect to it. And we often do things that are unpleasant in the present moment to have a bigger payoff later, like studying hard or eating a healthful diet. It's like life is one big marshmallow test, but you don't even get the free marshmallow. <laughs> right? <laughs> kind of is. This is related to a big time suck in people's lives, which is watching television. Hanging out with your friends makes you happier than watching TV, on average. But hanging out with friends requires a lot of hassle, I, I certainly find. Scheduling it, getting there and back, finding something to talk about. So even though watching TV makes you less happy than hanging out with friends, it's much easier to start doing it than it is to make a date with your buddies. So people just go for the easy short-term thing and just turn on the TV and they can just watch all evening even though they're less happy. Mm, that's another example of how people act in ways that aren't good for their own happiness. Uh, but to be fair, a good TV show can be better than a mediocre friendship. <laughs> I mean, the show Friends, they're smart, they're funny, they're witty, they ask nothing of you. Real friends, oh, responsibilities. <laughs> And, of course, people generally seek out the f music and food and experiences that will make them happy. Uh, but let's spend some time on where people get it wrong. Sure. My favorite example is commuting. And when people are looking for a place to live, they often want a big place. Uh, and they also want it in town where it's interesting and convenient. But the bigger places are more expensive downtown. So they see this as a trade-off. I can live in town and have a small place. Or I can live outside town and have a big place. The thing is, for many people, living out of town involves a commute. They have to get into town to work and do other things. I guess they think, I'll have to commute, but I'll have a big place. It's a happiness trade-off. Right. They see it that way, but they're wrong. And the reason they're wrong is because they get used to the house size, but they don't get used to the commute. Mm, seems like we're entering the domain of habituation, meaning the term for that which has a strong emotional impact at first it tends to lessen over time. Right. Right, and this can happen with good and bad things. You just get used to it. It becomes your new normal, your new baseline. But what's interesting and hard to predict is that it doesn't happen with everything. For the first few months, your small apartment might bug you, or you might feel joy at the expanse of your big house in the burbs. But after a few months, you just sort of take it for granted, and your happiness returns to where it was. But not with commuting. No, it turns out that the commute always drives you crazy. It never stops bothering you. And they've even measured for each half hour of commuting you have to do. There's an effect on your stress and the quality of your social life. Mm, people might think it's a fair trade-off, but for many it won't be. I know some people like the solitude as they'd like to mentally segue into and out of their work life. Right, I've heard that too. Um, perhaps that's a, you know, put on a good science podcast. <clears throat> uh, <laughs> for most others though, if you're stuck in traffic or you're on a crowded bus, it's just not really a pleasant way to spend their time. Right, right. So people, there are other things people don't habituate to, um, like loneliness, a lack of autonomy in your life, uh, chronic noise, like living near an airport. And this is why we need science to help us be happier. It's not really obvious uh, which, which things we're going to habituate to and which things we're not. Um, so there's a big difference between happiness and getting what we want, because getting what we want 
doesn't always make us happier. <laughs> How tragic in life, eh? Yeah. It seems like habituation, or lack of it, is a really powerful phenomenon. Uh, doesn't that mess with our ideas about happiness and how we should try to maintain it? It's a good question. You know, for the most part, our minds are really great at detecting change, right? Uh, they tend to ignore things that stay the same. And this is true for visual perception. Uh, it's also true for happiness. So yeah, it does kind of mess with it, right? So something that makes you happy or miserable in the short term might have no effect on the long term because you habituate to it. Sometimes people use the term hedonic treadmill which I think is a great term to refer to how people will pursue something because they think it's going to make them happier, but then they quickly get used to it and then they have to pursue something else. So they just sort of never stopping, like searching for happiness. Like happiness is always like five pounds. I'm going to lose five pounds or I'm going to get $2,000 more a year and it, it's never satisfying. It's always the next thing. Yeah. Right. It does seem kind of cruel that your life can be objectively better, but you don't feel like it is. Yeah. And it's especially problematic because humans often measure their life satisfaction by comparing themselves to others. Right. It can right. be the case that one's relative standing matters more than their absolute position. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Many would prefer to be higher status in a smaller domain than to lose status for a more absolute gain. Oh, you humans, you. <laughs> uh, so anyway, I was just noticing that many of these factors that affect happiness that we're talking about, like habituation, mess with our understanding of the impact of disease. Oh, Yeah. Yeah. Regular listeners of my show, The Reality Check, know that I'm into effective altruism, which is both a social movement and a philosophy that tries to improve the world in the most efficient way possible. It turns out that one of the best ways to help the world is to reduce disease in really poor countries. Mm -hmm. And to measure that, we need to know the effect of disease on people's happiness. Right. We know diseases are bad. Can't we just say disease is bad? Uh, yes, we can. And not just assume, but know that disease is bad from repeated evidence that it is. Again, it's always better to verify assumptions. But if we're trying to maximize our effectiveness, we need to assign numbers to diseases so we can compare the impact of this disease compared to the impact of that disease. Right, right. So when people look at the burden of disease, so for example, how much worse is your life if you have depression or diabetes? Getting depression or diabetes has a cost to your happiness but I would imagine you habituate more to diabetes than to depression. Mm. But the measures don't really accommodate habituation at all. Don't they also measure the burden of disease not by asking people who actually have the disease, but by asking other people? Yeah, it's, it's a bit complicated. So they ask people with different diseases about their mobility, pain, and other things. And then they give those numbers to healthy people and ask how much they think their happiness would be affected by having that disease. But they're subject to biases with that. For example, many people think having diabetes would be worse than depression, but if you measure happiness of people who have each of those diseases, you find that depression is much more devastating. That's, yeah, that's a problem. The measure of disease burden fails to account for habituation and doesn't measure happiness of the people who actually have the diseases. Right. So until we have a better measure, we use these numbers, even though they are problematic. Uh, habituation's of particular interest when it comes to money. So lots of people think that having more money is going to make them happier, but the relationship between wealth and happiness isn't as straightforward as people think it is. Not at all. The poorer you are, the more valuable the same amount of money is. Right. So $100 is 10 times more valuable to someone who is 10 times poorer. That means that an increase in yearly income of, say, $10,000 will increase the happiness of a poor person much more than someone who is rich. This is how effective altruists tend to think. And some studies show that the increase in happiness is negligible after you have all of the necessities covered and a little spending, spending money on top of that. And in North America, 
your happiness doesn't seem to increase after you're making about $105,000 per year. In Sub-Saharan Africa, though, where it's a lot cheaper to live, it plateaus at about $40,000 per year. And these are in 2016 dollars. I think that data was challenged recently, at least in North America. A 2021 study found that there is no plateau. It's just that some diminishing returns kick in. If you can manage to keep doubling your income, you too can be marginally happier. Dude, this is my podcast here. <laughs> all right, this is what I get for inviting a skeptic podcaster to my show. All right, Mike, you can you can just cut all that all that part out where Darren. Uh, but isn't the... <laughs> but isn't the truth important for your happiness, Jim? Uh, well, we can agree that the pursuit of more money has diminishing returns. <laughs> yes, <clears throat> the benefit gets smaller as you get more wealthy. Uh, okay, so all right, uh, cuteness aside here, what are some other myths of happiness? Okay, another one is that we sometimes confuse happiness with compulsion. So video games, uh, I think, are a good example of this. People think they play video games because it makes them happier, but different games have different psychological effects. Uh, so gamers uh, who are listening to this might feel this difference with different kinds of games. So some games are really thought-provoking and beautiful, and they, and they really do truly bring joy to you. And others just feel more compulsive. I know what you're talking about. Now, I know some people play Candy Crush, but sometimes I get into these tower defense games. Mm -hmm. And it's not that I'm truly enjoying myself. It's that I feel compelled to finish a level even after diminishing returns are set in. And I know this. <laughs> <laughs> right. You just can't stop. I think this difference corresponds to the pleasure and drive uh, chemicals in the brain. So uh, opioids and cannabinoids, they, they are sort of the pleasure chemicals. But dopamine is um, now more commonly thought to be the chemical of wanting. It's the basis of compulsions and addictions. So scientists used to confuse these, but now we're getting a better understanding of it. So when people are truly addicted to something, uh, getting that thing isn't pleasurable as much as reducing anxiety and their like kind of irresistible wanting. That's an important point. And while it's certainly the case that some people are truly addicted to video games, I think most people are not. At least the way we think about it might be wrong. The book Lost in a Good Game helped me reconceptualize how to think about games and video games. And while it is technically true that almost anything can be addictive, when people speak of addiction, what comes to mind are things like drinking or drugs or gambling, and that has a lot of physical, emotional, and financial costs. But games are more recreational. Uh, for example, if someone reads a really good book, they often say, I couldn't put it down. Have you ever heard someone say, oh wow, you should do something about your reading addiction? <laughs> No. <laughs> Similarly, if you really like playing guitar or socializing, we rarely think of people being addicted to these things. It just doesn't fit the same concept. Uh, now, in general, it seems the main thing is whether you're engaging in a behavior that you don't really want to be doing. And even that links to notions of societal acceptance. With games, though, people can run the risk of feeling good without achieving more tangible goals in their life. And I've heard that actually that sometimes people play video games at work because it helps them feel productive. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Yeah, so games are explicitly crafted to trigger things in our mind much more efficiently than real life. Like games are designed to, to, to really um, be maximally satisfying and, and just the real world <laughs> isn't. So challenges in video games are always surmountable. Uh, what we need to do is often clear. So we get the paradoxical situation where we can feel more productive playing a video game than we get from the inefficient rewards of our real life, like work or something. Right. So like with anything good in life, use responsibly. Yeah. Okay, let's get to the big factors. What do you think is the biggest factor and what makes people happy? Well, it is your genes. 
Oh, denim is very popular. No, <laughs> oh, he meant DNA. That's not the answer most people want to hear, Jim. Yeah, I know, I know. Uh, but genetics explains more of the variance than any other variable, somewhere around 40%. Mm, many people think that happy people are happy because they have good lives. Yeah, they do. I think it's one of the big myths of human psychology. Um, but, you know, I think every one of us can think of people who are really miserable, even though they have a perfect life, or somebody else who has no business being as happy as they are because their life sucks. Very true. So it seems that people have a happiness set point, and they return to that after they habituate, after they habituate to their life at the new normal. And it's really hard to change what that set point is. And I think that's a very hard pill for many to swallow. Uh, but okay, it sounds like we have another 60% of the variance to play with then? Right. Uh, we should not expect to achieve perfect happiness by changing our actions or the environment. And I just want people to be realistic. You know, that you can only do so much because a lot of it is genetic. Yeah, there are definitely some instances of toxic positivity out there. Some think we can just will ourselves to be happier. Then this makes other people feel guilty for not being happier. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I understand both parts of this. As you know, I think people cannot do otherwise, meaning they don't have contracausal will. But it is also true that most people listening to this have good lives and have won the lottery of birth and education and some other positive things and things many people take for granted and they don't have enough gratitude for. So, yes, I'm uh, <laughs> in gratitude shaming a bit. <laughs> well, the pursuit of happiness is difficult. And, you know, you can reduce happiness if you go too far or put pressure on yourself, things like that. If you're sad, sometimes it's OK to just be sad. Right. The pressure to be happy can sometimes make you feel worse. Very true. One has to learn what works for them and what is reasonable to be able to change. Okay, so let's talk about what people can do to be happier. Jonathan Haidt makes a great point in his book, The Happiness Hypothesis, that being happier is a practice, not a secret. What do you mean by that? Well, some people think that there's some secret to happiness. Believing this has an assumption that simply knowing the secret will make you happier. But being happier is about changing how you act every day. You have to maintain behaviors long enough so that they become good habits. And when you have lots of good, happiness-producing habits, then you'll get happier. Right, right. So happiness isn't caused by knowing some facts, but by changing your environment and how you act in it, like, every day. Yeah. Uh, he recommends focusing on the practice of happiness, which might take months to make a habitual part of your life. That's a great point. Um, I like to think of happiness with a metaphor of running. So if you think the faster you're running, the happier you are. Um, and you have a natural ability to run at a certain speed. And you can also train yourself to be a better runner, but your environment affects it too. So a steeper hill, it's harder to run faster on. So if you want to improve your happiness, you want to change yourself, but also your environment to make happiness easier. Mm -hmm. So what do you think people can do? Well, let's start with the biggest thing, is, which is a good social life. So hanging out with people like that you like and care about is the number one thing you can do to improve your happiness. Even for introverts? Yeah, even for introverts. Uh, it just takes them a little more effort to make it happen. So John Zelensky, who's a social psychologist who happens to live a few blocks from both of us, <laughs> he did a study that found that when you ask introverts to act like extroverts, they're happier. Hmm, interesting. I think it was uh, Susan Pinker's The Village Effect book that said that a good social life is also a number one predictor of longevity and health. Yeah, that's, that's why I want the big takeaway of this episode to be... Um, about, you know, the social life. Because even, even though it's often a pain to arrange social events, because everybody's so busy all the time, there's, and there's a chance of getting rejected, you know, just about everybody should be more social in our culture. What do you mean by in our culture? Something bacterial? <laughs> no. I mean, I mean socially. So like in Canada, the U.S., 
Western Europe, we have these individualistic cultures. We live in small family units and not extended families. And people just spend a lot of time alone or uh, maybe only with their romantic partner. And this is just not the case for many other eras and many other cultures. And having close, intimate friends requires frequent communication, like at least once every two weeks. Um, but if I were to invite the same friends over every week, you know, that, would be, that would be perceived as weird. <laughs> so people see each other like once every month or two, and then it's just not, it's just not an intimate relationship. Yeah, I found that if you don't talk to friends frequently, you're just doing a lot of catch-up, and often the deeper connection is lost. Exactly. And now there's this mitigating thing nowadays, though, with social media, where you might exchange frequent messages or memes, but it's not quite the same emotional sharing or intimacy that you might get from in-person or maybe even a phone call. Yeah, so uh, in social media, they've done studies of social media, and they find that, I mean, I think they need to do, I think there needs to be more research on this, but like a text message, for example, is almost as good as nothing for emotional support, but a phone call is as good as being in person or whatever. So I, th I feel like, sometimes I think of it as the junk food of socializing. <laughs> like it's... Well, you saying that made me think of historical times when they didn't have telephones and you had to have a horse and buggy to see your friend. And then you might get a dearest Martha letter every three months. You're like, this is amazing. So certainly a uh, cultural context matters. Yeah. So I, you know, I think, I think that having a uh, optimal social life is difficult in our culture, but you should do what you can. I agree. Uh, I think the social aspect of many people's lives has been turned upside down because of COVID. Many people used to see coworkers every day, and that allowed for various types of bonding. Mm -hmm. And many people spend more time at work than at home, so they're actually spending more time with their colleagues than their family. Alternatively, many people were forced to be with their family, perhaps a little more than desired. <laughs> uh, either way, it's wise to examine your own experience and see what you learn from that regarding your preferences for socializing. Perhaps some of you feel a bit lonely because of the loss of social connection from colleagues you don't see in person anymore. Yeah, that's a good point. Just chatting with your coworkers every day probably is really good for you. Anyway, yeah, so having a good social life has the same, uh, the same happiness benefits as having an additional uh, $166,000 of income, according to one estimate. Wow. And of course, with a number that precise, it must be true. Yep, it is. <laughs> so does that mean true. <laughs> I can trade one friend for 150 grand? <laughs> it's, it's the network. <laughs> oh, I see. Okay, all right. Um, so socializing is your top tip, Jim. What are some things that make happiness harder? Okay, uh, well, stress, uh, sleep deprivation, loneliness, all of those things affect your happiness in a bad way. Getting enough sleep, I think, is one of the easiest and most enjoyable ways to improve happiness. And I say that because many people in our culture are sleep deprived. If you want to be happier, be unconscious and experience less of reality. That's what I'm hearing <laughs> you say. <laughs> what about exercise? Yeah, exercise increases happiness too. Uh, and it doesn't need to be intense, like a, a moderate walk. Mm -hmm. I like my moderate walks. All right, let's run through some things really quickly. I'll say something, and you tell me if it makes people happier or not. <laughs> it's the happiness hot seat. There you go. Okay, we're throwing nuance out the window. Yes, my favorite hobby. <laughs> <laughs> Just due to time constraints, though. Okay, ready? Religion. Religion. Okay, if your life sucks, religion can make you happier by giving it more meaning and purpose. Vacations. Uh, has small, short-term effects only. And they have found that after 11 days on a trip, most people start missing the routines of home. I was in St. Martin for 12 days. I refute that. Okay. <laughs> Online social networks. Uh, best if used to arrange in-person engagements or phone calls. Marriage. Marriage. Short-term benefit to happiness, but a long-term benefit to your health. Hmm. Children. Children is very controversial, but probably no effect in the long term. 
interrupting the nuance for a brief moment with children it's very hard to compare because you have to look at people who wanted kids and had kids versus people who didn't want kids and didn't have kids and didn't want kids in the matrix of yep. four things yeah okay the, clearly the most important one listening to podcasts <laughs> Only if it's mine or yours, Darren. Uh, anecdotal evidence suggests the best answer. <laughs> You've been listening to Jim Davies and Darren McKee. You can hear more of Darren on his podcast, The Reality Check, which has won numerous awards and comes out every week. Available at trcpodcast.com or wherever fine podcasts are sold. You can read more about happiness in Jim's book, Being the Person Your Dog Thinks You Are, which was dedicated to Darren McKee. Minding the Brain is edited by Mike Contos and is brought to you by the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences and the Faculty of Science at Carleton University. If you want to support Minding the Brain, please consider leaving us a review in your podcast app of choice. If you'd like to follow us on Instagram, you can find us at Minding the Brain. Minding the Brain is currently looking for sponsors. If your company is interested, please email us at mindingthebrainpodcast at gmail.com. Theme music for Minding the Brain is Plucked by Michael Terry. More episodes and show notes available at mindingthebrainpodcast.com.